is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined as always by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert and patriot here at the Motley Fool. <laughs> <laughs> Happy Fourth of July weekend! Yes, that's right. It's the Fourth of July, and we're bringing you two tales of independence: the money lessons of a couple who declared their financial independence at the age of 38, and how George Washington amassed his millions. Is that in today's dollars or back then dollars?、Uh, it was today. It's today's dollars, almost back then dollars. Not too shabby. Depen- depends on who you ask. I'm asking you. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So, bro, what's up? Well, Allison, this month marks an anniversary. 14 years ago, the Motley Fool published the first issue of Rule Your Retirement. Are you serious? Yes. Aww. With yours truly as the advisor, and as so often as so often happens with first issues, it was followed by a second issue. And in that issue, I profiled Billy and Acacia Caterley, a couple with a pretty extraordinary story. So, after careers in the restaurant and financial services industries, they retired in 1991 at the age of 38. Wow! And their story generated a lot of interest in real retirement. People want to know how to retire that early and how they were faring. So, every few years, I get in contact with them and get an update and say, "How are things going?" Well, I did that just this week. So, how are they able to retire so young, and how are they doing now at the age of 65? Here are seven lessons from their story. So number one, determine how much you really need. So right before they retired, they figured that they could live on twenty thousand dollars a year. Wow! This is ninety-one. So adjusting for inflation, that's thirty-nine thousand dollars. Still、today. not a ton of money. No, not a ton of money.、So、really, what they figured out was that once you cut out the cost of home ownership, car ownership, work-related expenses, and the high taxes associated with their careers, you could get by on a lot less. So at that point, this is nineteen ninety-one again. They had saved almost five hundred thousand dollars, so twenty thousand dollars would be a four percent withdrawal rate, and they figured out they could make that work. And by the way, this is a few years before the four percent safe withdrawal rate became a thing, so kind of figured out on their own that that was a good withdrawal rate. So one thing that they told me was that they constantly recommend going into retirement with zero debt, no mortgage, no car loan, and no credit card debt. Period. Number two, live around the world. So how could they live such a relatively low cost lifestyle? They do what they've called a nomadic lifestyle in living in low-cost parts of the world. They're either renting furnished apartments or staying in hotels, but this does not mean living in boring parts of the world. So their first retirement destination was Nevis, a gorgeous island in the Caribbean. And here are some of the other places that they've lived either longer term or just visited: Thailand, Mexico, Guatemala, Venezuela, Vietnam, China, New Zealand, Australia, Indonesia, Panama. Myanmar, the Philippines, and Ecuador. Wow! Right, and they they love this. They love moving all over the world. They really enjoy immersing themselves in the cultures of the places they visit. So, in a small town in Mexico, they taught English. They built tennis courts. They imported a basketball scoreboard. In Thailand, they took cooking and massage classes.、Uh, in Venezuela, they ate giant black ants, which、Ooh. is apparently a local delicacy.、Um, and they've been doing this on thirty thousand dollars a year or less ever since they retired, even in this past year. And despite all that, their net worth has grown since 1991, even adjusted for inflation. Number three, track everything. So every morning when Billy wakes up, he fires up his spreadsheet, tallies their daily expenses, and calculates it as a percentage of their net worth. And he also monitors their spending weekly, monthly, and annually. Wow! Right. So as he told me in an interview a few years ago, if you do this for 30 days, it can change your life. Also, that feeling of being in complete control of your finances is a real boost to your self-confidence. That fact alone is motivational. 
he's told me that it's been important for them to have all this information so when the market goes down or if their costs are a little higher than expected, expected, they have it all planned out and they know how their spending will change. If for some reason expenses go up or they decide to stay in a higher cost place like Australia, they just then decide to go live in a lower cost place like Vietnam or Cambodia. So they adjust their expenses that way. Uh, number four, start early to retire early. So they had saved $500,000 by the time they were 38. That would be pretty amazing today. And it was even more extraordinary back then. They were able to do it because they owned a restaurant that they started and then they sold it. And then Billy was also a manager at a brokerage firm. So they obviously accumulated a good amount of money. But still, when I asked them, like, is there anything you would do differently or anything like that, they said they basically would have started earlier. They also, they also said they wouldn't have bought a house like they did earlier because a house was actually delayed the amount of time for them to be able to retire. Um, so their lesson is constantly, regardless of your age, just start saving now. Number five, let the stock market replace your paycheck. So the S&P 500 closed at 312 when they retired. Today, it's around 2,700. And of course, that doesn't count for dividends. So during their retirement, they endured the two bear markets, the dot-com crash and the Great Recession. Um, but their portfolio still returned about 10% a year. Uh, and they've been heavily invested in the stock market throughout. Now that they're 65, they've pared back the risk a little bit. And he says that they're, right now, they're about 50% stocks and 50% cash and bonds. Uh, number six, get comfortable with international healthcare. They said that this is one of the questions they get the most. How do you handle healthcare if you're living outside the United States? And basically, they say the healthcare outside the United States, in many places, is just as good, if not better. Especially in Mexico and Thailand, many of the doctors are trained in the United States, and it's much more affordable. They've been through all kinds of experiences, including one situation where Acacia almost lost her finger in an accident. <gasps> oh. um, I think it was in Guatemala, but they received perfectly fine medical care. What they do when they travel to the United States, they buy catastrophic insurance just because they don't want to be uninsured in the United States. And also, now that they're 65, they have Medicare. But it's important to know that you can only use Medicare when you're in the United States. So, if they ever need Medicare, they just come back to the United States and use it there. Uh, and their final tip is basically give it a try. They think if you're, if you're interested in doing this, Pare down your budget and learn to live off that for a year or two. Visit some of the places you're interested in without selling everything you own first, just to make sure that you're happy with it. They have encountered people that try it and find out they don't like it. Um, they they turn they have this term called early retirement depression. There are people they found they find it. They leave their lives in the United States. They leave their families. They leave their jobs, and they find it wasn't quite for them or they didn't really have a plan for what they were going to do. Um, so they suggest that you should give it a try for a couple of years. But for them, they don't have a single regret, and they're very happy that they left the working world at age 38. It's awesome that they were able to retire so young, because those are such good years of being able to be mobile, and be, like, like we say, out of the last few years in life. They're not the good years. Right. So what, are, what is their plan for when they get to not such good years? Well, they, they, I've asked them, like, what's your biggest fear or anxiety? It is basically losing one of them. I mean, they're yeah. each other's best friends. But they've said one thing is that end-of-life care is actually much cheaper in other countries. They do have a very small home, and I believe it's in Arizona, um, that they go back to every once in a while. So that's also a possibility. Um, but that's basically one of their biggest anxieties, what's going to happen later on in life. If you'd like to learn more about their exotic and inexpensive adventures, you can visit their website at retireearlylifestyle.com. Here comes the general. Awesome. Here comes the general.
brought us estate planning lessons from Benjamin Franklin and this year he's reviving the founding father's theme and we're learning money lessons from George Washington. Right, since it's the week of July 4th this is the time when Americans celebrate our independence and no person can claim more responsibility for that independence than George Washington. When you think of Washington you may think of him think of him as the general who led the colonial army or the first president or the puffy face you see as you put a dollar bill in your wallet it was probably made puffy by his dentures by the way oh but what you may not know is that Washington was one of the wealthiest presidents of all time estimates of his net worth range adjusted for today's dollars from 20 million to 525 million dollars wow yep so how did he amass such wealth while also successfully rebelling against what was then the most powerful country on the planet and then helping create what is now the most powerful country on the planet? Here are eight lessons. Number one, it always helps to have wealthy relatives. <laughs> <laughs> so it never hurts. It never hurts. So it's always good. it always helps to have a little head start in life. So Washington's father was a relatively prosperous planter in Virginia. He did die when George was eleven, which was Originally a setback for George because he then couldn't go on to Europe to become educated like his older brothers did. He had to stay back. But some people look at that as actually a good thing for him because instead he had to learn more practical things like accounting and mathematics and stuff like that. When his brother died about 15 years or so later, George inherited Mount Vernon, uh, which is the estate about what, 15 minutes south of us here yeah. at Fool HQ. So when Washington inherited Mount Vernon, the building was essentially a farmhouse on 2,000 acres, and by the time he died, it was a 21-room mansion with 8,000 acres. And at the age of 28, Washington married Martha Custis, who was a wealthy widow who owned 18,000 acres spread over five plantations. Her main house was known as White House Plantation. Oh. And that's where they got married. And in fact, it was the only building named White House that Washington was ever in because the other White House was finished a year after he died. In fact, George Washington is the only president to have never actually resided in Washington, D.C. Uh, and so while George and Martha never had kids, it's possible that Washington may have been made sterile by either smallpox or tuberculosis. She had children from her first marriage, and uh, Washington raised them as his own. And by all accounts, they were very happily married. But marrying her made Washington one of the wealthiest men in Virginia. So wait, I'm sorry, that lesson was marry rich. Is that well have marry wealthy relatives? Money? Marry for money, I Get think, it. was that lesson. That, that, that's what the lesson was. It helps. Yeah. It helps. Uh, number two. Avoid debt. And so, like many of the landed gentry of his time, many of the founding fathers, Washington occasionally found himself in debt. And in 1764, he owed 1,800 pounds, partially due to importing too many luxuries from Europe. But he decided to get his act together. He cut back on his spending and he worked to avoid debt, though he still had occasions of being short on cash. So, legend has it that he actually had to borrow money to travel to New York for the first inauguration. First inauguration was in New York, the second one was in Philadelphia. Um, but it was important to him that he pay his debts, though he wasn't actually so fastidious about collecting debts. He was known for forgiving debts or just forgetting that. He actually didn't forget that he made them. He just didn't ask for the money back. Um, and the very first item in his will was, quote, all my debts, of which there are few and none of magnitude, <laughs> are to be punctually and speedily paid. So he wanted to make sure that mm. one of the first things that his um, executors did, pay off his debts. Uh, so he didn't like uh, personal debt. And he didn't like America's debt. So actually, one of the great achievements of his presidency was limiting the debt from the col that the colonies incurred during the war, which, according to Professor Ed Lingle, estimated to be adjusted for inflation in the trillions. 
But with the help of Alexander Hamilton, they were able to pay off all that debt within six years. Number three, keep good records. So another reason he was eventually able to pull himself out of debt is that he paid more attention to his finances, in particular, in particular keeping good records. All kinds of different records, all kinds of different ledgers. He had a little book with him that he would write down all his expenses. And at the end of every day, he would review the day's ledgers and sign off on them. Wait, he would sign off on his on his own ledgers? Well, the ledgers for all the for everything for all his businesses. And Just as like I'll the get to, as I'll get to later, he had a lot of businesses. Um, when he was appointed general of the colonial armies, he said, "You don't have to pay me. I just want to be reimbursed for my expenses." So he kept pretty careful track of that. Um, in the first inauguration speech, he once again said, "I don't pay me a salary." But then Congress voted pay him $25,000, which at the time was 2% of the federal budget. Wow. Yep. So, most of his papers exist. So, when you put all, at the Library of Congress, put all his ledgers and journals and account books and everything together, all his financial paperwork, it filled 34 volumes. So, he's pretty good at keeping track of things. In fact, the only significant documents about his life that don't exist are the letters that Martha and he wrote to each other. She burned most of them after he died. Aww. From what I've read, she basically said, like, I had to share him with the rest of the world most of his life. This part I want to keep private. Oh. Yeah. Number four, diversify your assets. Um, so, like most farms in the 18th century, Mount Vernon and, and the other plantations focused on tobacco. The problem with that was you had to send the tobacco to England. Washington was never sure whether he was getting a good price for it. And also, you often didn't get paid in cash, you got paid in goods. So, you sent off the tobacco and then you got back stuff that you had ordered. But he wasn't convinced that he was getting the best equipment. Some of the stuff that got sent over wasn't of high quality. Plus, in the 1760s, kind of the bottom fell out of the tobacco market. So, he was one of the first people to say, like, I need to do something else. So, he diversified first into wheat, but then he moved on to all kinds of other businesses, um, fisheries, milling, horse breeding, hog production, spinning and weaving. Um, he co-founded the, Di- the Great Dismal Swamp Company. Do you know where the Great Dismal Swamp is? No. <laughs> I had never heard of it, but it's actually in Virginia and North Carolina. Oh. Um, but his, the goal was to clear it and make it land worth uh, farming on. Unfortunately, it didn't work. They so should, Well, they should have renamed it. They had a branding <laughs> problem. A branding problem. <laughs> yep. Um, but at the time of his death, he owned 52,000 acres of land as well as several other businesses. Number five, diversify your human capital. We've talked about human capital before, basically, your ability to earn a paycheck. So besides running all these businesses, he thought he would have some time to become a politician, as he did, and he joined the military, serving in the British uh, military for a long time, and then, of course, taking over the military. So this obviously uh, increased his standing in society, incre- increased his connections, and he actually got land in return for serving in like the French and Indian War as far as Pennsylvania. So that's part of why he got some of his land. Uh, number six, owned stocks and bonds too. So he didn't own just real estate. At the time of his death, his portfolio of stocks and bonds was worth about $35,000 in those days. That said, not all the, the investments turned out well. Some of the stocks that he owned did not fare so well. Um, In his will, he left some of these stocks to be used for charitable purposes. For example, the Alexandria Academy, which was a school for orphans and um, other poor kids. The bank, it was, he left shares of the Bank of Alexandria, which was the first bank of Virginia, and the building still exists here in Old Town. Oh, which one is it? 
I think it's down on Cameron Street. Oh, cool. Yeah. He also bequeathed 50 shares of stock to the Potomac Company as an endowment for a university in Washington, D.C. And for years, even before he died, he said that we need a good university in the central part of the country because otherwise people were going off to Europe to become mm-hmm. educated and basically learning things that were not conducive to a good democracy. Oh, we know, we know some of the things that <laughs> French people believed That's back then. right. Ben Franklin, we know what you did over there. <laughs> Unfortunately, the Potomac Company, which was meant to sort of dredge up and, and build locks and canals up the Potomac, which some of those did get built, like you could see them along the way, like in Great Falls and places like that. Yeah. It did not survive. But the idea of forming a university in Washington, D.C. did happen. It was originally called Columbian College. And then 1904, it was renamed to George Washington University. A fine university. A fine university. Anyway, so he had mixed success with his stocks, but I admire the fact that he did try to do something good with what he had. Uh, number seven, cash in on vices. Always a good strategy. So Washington was only a moderate drinker, um, but and he considered drunkenness like one of the worst vices, but that didn't prevent him from making money from alcohol. He built a distillery uh, that in the year before his death produced 11,000 gallons of whiskey, which made it the most productive distillery in America. I think they've talked about opening it back up. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just like, well, not yeah, yeah. Rick's nodding his head. Yeah, I think they're. T- I mean, because there's like a big boom right now for like small craft spirits and cider and things like that. So we may have to take a field trip. <laughs> uh, so there was. I did come across this funny story. So like I said, he, he he didn't like drunkenness. He had a gardener that he I guess wanted to keep on the payroll. Drank a little too much, so he, he wrote a contract with the guy. He said, listen, if you can stay sober through most of the time, I'll pay you $4, and you can be drunk for four days at Christmas time, and I'll pay you $2 at Easter time, and you can be drunk for two days straight then. <laughs> but otherwise, I expect you to be sober. <laughs> and number eight, have a solid estate plan. So he left most of his estate to Martha, including, as stated in his will, quote, my improved lot in the town of Alexandria situated on Pitt and Cameron Streets. Rick, as a longtime fool, can you tell us what else was on the corner of Pitt and Cameron Streets in Alexandria? Motley Fool Office, I think, right? That's right, yes. The previous Motley Fool Office. We were George Washington's neighbors. That's I awesome. Did, that just thought it was so funny to see that actually written in his will. Yeah. Um, and in his will, he, he apportioned out a lot of his um, estate for charitable consideration. He forgave a lot of debts. Um, and he also freed his slaves, sort of. So the one thing we have to acknowledge that his the fact that he owned slaves, and by the time he died, it was more than three hundred. Wow! Um, it's a, it's a legitimate stain on his legacy. And when you talk about his the success, his financial success, it's it's no doubt in part to him having slave labor. What he put in his will was that once his wife passes away, his slaves would be freed. Um, and that they would be educated. So anyone who was younger would be educated, the older would be taken care of. He had a very complicated story when it comes to slavery. He inherited his first slaves at age 11 when his dad died. And back then he kind of thought it was just a normal thing to do to have slaves. That changed over his lifetime, partially being from the Revolutionary War because he interacted with people like Lafayette and Hamilton who despised slavery. 
So he changed. He then stopped buying more slaves. He stopped selling slaves. He refused to break up families. And even in his will, he said no slaves should be moved out of the state of Virginia. Um, So basically, in the end, he tried to make it better. But still, he didn't free them outright. He just freed them after his wife passed Mm -hmm. away. So those are the lessons from George Washington. Um, It did take, by the way, it took almost 40 years for his will to be settled. He named seven executors, and by the time the will was eventually settled, only one of them was still alive. Not because of any um, problems, necessarily. It was just that his estate was so complicated, Mm. it took that long. Um, But I'll close here with 10 fun facts. 10. 10 about George Washington. All right, everybody. Number one, contrary to popular myth, his false teeth weren't made of wood. He had tooth troubles his whole life, and by the time he was inaugurated as president at age 57, he only had one tooth left. Oh. And he, had, he had several collections of dentures with chompers coming from the teeth of cows, horses, and other humans, perhaps including even some of his own teeth, which he kept. And they, they have a, a letter from him directing the per, He was in New York at the time, and he was directing someone at his estate to wrap up his teeth and send it to him, we assume, to create new dentures. Fun fact. Fun fact. Number two, the dude could dance. He was famous for dancing, and uh, he could last for hours, and as his fame grew, there'd be this line of women waiting to dance with General Washington. Uh, Number three, he knew his way around a horse. Thomas Jefferson called him... (laughs) Is that a good way to say that? (laughs) Thomas Jefferson called him the best horseman of his age, and both people in America and Europe uh, observed his great horsemanship. Number four, he was a redhead. Although some descriptions of his hair have it as reddish brown. So all the white hair you see in in the portraits is due to plenty of powder. He actually never wore a wig. Uh, Number five, he he was known to gamble. And in his voluminous financial records, he kept track of his winnings and losses, but not during the Revolutionary War. In fact, there was no card playing allowed among his troops because he forbid games of chance. Mm. Number six... He didn't like to shake hands. And the stuff I read was either he didn't like to shake hands in general or it was after he was president and he thought it was beneath the president to shake hands. But he would bow and then hold his hands in a way that would indicate, like, I don't want to shake your hands. And by the way, huge hands. He had to have custom-made gloves. Number seven, a fired ex-employee once tried to steal Washington's skull. So this is after he'd already died. Someone running a state fired the, the gardener. Unfortunately, the gardener mistakenly took the skull of one of Bushrod Washington's in-laws, Bushrod being George's nephew and one of the earliest justices on the Supreme Court. This is when, if you've ever been to Mount Vernon, you see that uh, there's the mausoleum with George Washington and there's a gate on it. All that, his body and Martha's body and all the family members' bodies were moved to this sort of more secure location after someone tried to rob his grave. Uh, number eight, he chose some interesting names for his dogs. They include True Love, Sweet Lips, Madam Moose, Drunkard, Vulcan, Tipsy, and of course, Cornwallis, named after the British general he defeated in the war. <laughs> Tipsy's a cute name for a dog, yeah. actually. Yeah, Vulcan, I thought that was pretty cool. Vulcan, weird. Hot Lips, not so much. Hot Lips, no. <laughs> so Sweet Lips. <laughs> He's probably a MASH fan. <laughs> number nine. After his inauguration, he chose to be addressed as Mr. President. And this was much less, much less exalted than some of the others that people wanted to call him, such as His Excellency, His Mightiness, His Elective <laughs> Majesty, and His Electoral Highness. <laughs> and finally, he has the highest rank that will ever be bestowed upon someone in the U.S. military. So in 1776, as part of America's bicentennial celebrations, 
Washington was posthumously appointed General of the Armies of the United States. And that law from Congress specified that no other officer in the United States Army should outrank him and that he shall have the highest rank in the United States military, past, present, and future. So there you have it. There you have it. Happy Fourth of July, everyone. Are you ready for the summer? Summer's Foolish interns are joining us in the studio now to share their summer recommendations. They are young and presumably hip, so let's see what they suggest we should do or consume or whatever this summer. We left it pretty open. Hi, I'm Rohan. I go to the University of Virginia, and my summer recommendation is to hop on Netflix and watch the movie Coco, because it is amazing. Am I going to cry? You might. You might. You might. Hello, I'm Troy. I'm from Fairfax. I'm from the University of Richmond. And my summer recommendation is a book called Why Buddhism is True. It's not necessarily a religious book, but it's a book about meditation from an evolutionary psychologist. Um, And it's a really cool take on being mindful. And I would have never thought that would have been me, but it was a great (laughs) book. (laughs) My name's Thomas. I'm from Fayetteville, Arkansas. Um, My summer recommendation is going to Jazz at the Gardens at the Sculpture Garden every Friday. In D.C. at the Hirshhorn? It's near the Hirshhorn. Yeah, by the Natural History Museum. Oh, okay. That's a good time. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. I'm Aili. I live in Alexandria. Um, My summer recommendation are citronella soap bars because I get bitten by mosquitoes and they hurt and I'm the only one who gets bitten, but they're really cool. I get bit by mosquitoes all the time, too. You need to get them. Where do you get them? I have a friend who makes them, but they're all over Etsy, and they're okay. sustainable usually, and okay. I use it like a salve, and it's so, really helpful. Is this like you bring it into a shower and you... No. Well, some people use it after shower, like a regular lotion, but okay. I just use it like a salve when I get bitten or when I'm going outside and put it on like my main points of... Yes. Yeah. Gotcha. Yes. Yeah. The struggle is real. <laughs> I got, I'll get you one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Olivia. I'm from right here in Alexandria, Virginia, and my summer recommendation is to read the book Sharp Objects by Gillian Flynn, who's the author of Gone Girl, and then watch the new HBO miniseries on the book, which comes out July 8th. So I'm very excited for that. Cool. I've been, I've seen like the previews on HBO. They've been selling me on it. Like, what's her face? Is, whoever that actress is is so good. Oh, oh yeah, Amy, Amy Adams. Mc, Amy Adams. Oh, what's, she's so good. What's the book about? It's it's kind of a dark, you know, it's Gone Girl esque, like a dark murder mystery story. So oh. very intriguing. The show should be good. Great. I'm on board. Done. Hello, I'm Hi. Amanda, and I'm from Woodbridge, Virginia. And my summer recommendation, because I love coffee so much, is to take advantage of Dunkin' Donuts Transit Tuesday deals. If you bring in your Metro card, um, you can get a large iced coffee or hot coffee for $1.69, which is cheaper than even a small. And I do it every single Tuesday on my way into work. I had no idea. I had no idea What if you just have the smart card? That's that works. That works. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Yep. Hi, I'm Tori. I'm from Southington, Connecticut, and I'm actually here to recommend a D and D podcast called The Adventure Zone. So if you like D and D and you like listening to people who don't know how to play it, it's a good podcast. D and D as in Dungeons and Dragons. Really? The nerdiest of the nerdiest. Wow. <laughs> oh, she's in good company yeah. here. Wow. We have LARPing now, so you, if you don't go to LARPing, you can you can do D and D podcasts. You haven't Dude, sunk I, all the way down. I spent a lot of my younger life doing D and D. Hello, I'm Sam. I'm from Falls Church, Virginia, like two towns over, and I'm actually here to recommend an album, The Phosphorescent Blues by Punch Brothers. Perfect. And what kind of music is it? How would you describe it? 
bluegrass, actually. Oh, interesting. Perfect. Right. Rick's going to go check it out on Spotify. <laughs> <laughs> my name's Maria. I'm from New York. And my summer recommendation is the National Museum of Women in Art, which I haven't actually gone to, but it's my number one thing that I want to do this summer. It's one of the only museums that um, exhibits only female artists. And where, what city is it in? It's in D.C. I had no idea. I've never heard of it either. Hello. Hello. I'm Lauren, and I'm from the mountains of North Carolina. Um, and I want to recommend a book called Designing Your Life. Um, it's written by a couple of Stanford professors, and they kind of created like a class about how to actually like make a life compass and then for real go after it. And so it's um, about really, or it's for anyone in any era of their life who feels like, ah, I haven't figured out what I want to do. Um, so, yeah, it's really interesting and fun to learn about yourself. So. Perfect. Great. All right. That's the show. Stocks. <laughs> David G sent us another postcard. Uh, this one was from Machu Picchu. It was our first one from Peru. Uh, and of course, if you want to send us a postcard from your summer adventures, we would love it. Our address is 2000 Duke Street, Alexandria, Virginia, 22314. Uh, our email also is answers at fool.com if you want to send us a question, although Bro will tell you that we have a lot of questions to get to. We have a lot of questions. And it, he feels very guilty about that. <laughs> so anyway, the show is edited patriotically by Rick Engdahl. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Bye.